So first and foremost, I think the the addition of pant leggings is really when you start to see your heroes get watered down. Can't even muster the ability to play straight pants that one. Uh, which is a good argument for absolute rulers. Everybody is going to get behind me. They're going to love me, and my support numbers will go through. When you hang out with the hero, it doesn't go well for you. My grandfather yeah. took the cop and just slid it right through the bar. Okay. And that became the dominant way our family did it. Okay. And so, <laughs> in both of my marriages, they were treated to that. Okay, wait, hold on. Yeah, rage haiku. How do you imagine the rubber chicken point? My grandmother actually vacuumed in her pearls. Oh my god, it all makes sense. We've had the sexual revolution. It yeah. might have just been a Canadian standoff. We're gonna go back to 9 11. Dude, get over it. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands what the rights are supposed to be. Agra has no <laughs> business being that thick. <laughs> when the cultists win, we all win. nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history teacher here in California and And this week, the biggest thing I have going on is uh, that I have actually unlocked the ability for you and producer George to join me in MechWarrior. Do we have to unlock that same ability? No, I think I can, I think I can, I can, if I'm understanding it correctly, I can invite you Mm -hmm. to join me in the campaign mode of the game, which is awesome. The downside is when I do that, you're playing as members of my mercenary company. Okay. And right now... All of my mechs are, well, with the exception of my, you know, hero mech, mm-hmm. uh, which is a 50-ton Centurion, everything else I have is 35 tons or lower. That's fine. So, you know, upsides, upsides yeah. downsides. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm excited that I've managed to get that far. And um, also, when you get to a point in MechWarrior 5 where you actually have supporting AI pilots backing you up, mm-hmm. shit gets so much, so much easier. <laughs> So much easier. Nice. Uh, because I can just say, oh, that mech right there. Fuck him up. And then instead of just me, I've mm-hmm. got, you know, multiple guns on target. It's nice. it's really it's really quite powerful feeling, I have to say. Cool. Um, so that's kind of what I've got going on. I have, what, how about you? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin and drama teacher up here in Northern California. Uh, And the most exciting thing I found this week was that it is... The world is on fire. Yes. But what's interesting to me is the fact that the world was exactly on fire at this time last year. Yeah. Well, it's it's become seasonal. The regularity. uh, Seasonal is one thing. The regularity, the reliability of... And the severity. Yes, of this yeah. time. Like, eventually we're going to run out of fuel to burn, but apparently not yet. Not not for a while. So, but it's 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 really quite something. So that's yeah. exciting. 
Yeah, in a bad way. Yeah. So, so speaking of ends of the world. Oh yes. Oh nice. Um, your your thesis mm-hmm. is about the the end of a personal world. Yeah. Which is to say zombification. Yeah, and I don't know that there's necessarily a thesis here yet. I think there's going to be some conclusions about why okay. the shift happens, but okay. ultimately we have seen in the previous episode uh, was that zombies up until 1968 yes. were largely uh, brain slaves. Yeah, and they were the victims. Right. Yeah. Post-1968, it's a very different thing. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Night Night of the Living Dead. just That's the first just, one, yeah. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, so. you can't talk about zombie movies in the American Zitgeist without talking about George Romero. I Frankly, mean, it might not know, be worth talking about if without you don't. George Romero. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and Night of the Living Dead um is a really like on on a bunch of on a bunch of levels it's a remarkable film it is um but i think uh the the way in which it really manages to make horror out of something that is visually very minimalist yes like the the zombies the the effects of the, on the zombies the the you know rotting and deadness of the zombies in that film really isn't that pronounced right and it doesn't like matter we don't we don't You're see right. like like yeah. uh, in in the walking dead for example like in the very first episode of the walking dead we see you know skulls you, see into you know head. you yeah. know you see yeah. into in, you know bones poking yeah. out of places and and the gore is is everywhere right in Night of the Living Dead, they're sallow and pale, and they've they've they're clearly wearing you know funereal clothing. Yeah, but you know, and, and a few of them kind of have you know a little bit a of little nod bit of to a little bit of you know scarification yeah. or something. But but they are what's what's horrific about them is they don't ever stop. Yeah, I mean, it, ultimately, it's, you know, it, Night of the Living Dead was to zombie movies what Jaws is to uh, shark movies. Okay. Um, in that it's minimalist and yeah. they occupy space on screen without very, very often being on screen. Oh, yeah. You know, the shark yeah. in Jaws was on screen for a total of 11 and some odd minutes. Yeah. And it was terrifying and it held space in everybody's mind on screen and therefore the audience's mind. Yeah. So. But yes, uh, 1968, George Romero uh, changed zombie movies forever. I don't know that he was looking to, but he did. Um, So in 1968, Night of the Living Dead released. Uh, And uh, I would say this changed the genre forever in a way that, like, is comparable to Adam West changing Batman forever. Okay. And I I don't mean Adam West changing the Val Kilmer movie. I mean Batman, comma, forever. Yeah. Uh, or in the way that your science fiction writers changed the genre forever. Uh, this was the watershed. Prior to it, zombies were central to the plot, uh, but they were always controlled by malevolent, malevolent intelligence. Now, there were other movies that they weren't central to the plot, but like I said, there's a bit of a nuance there. I don't think that those really count as zombie movies. Those are movies that feature zombies. Okay. There's yeah, a difference. It makes sense. Uh, the only exception was the Earth Dies Screaming, where it's an alien invasion, and uh, the malevolent touch of those aliens kills people and then zombifies them. And that's really just a byproduct of alien contacts and alien killing. Yeah. Um, but yes, they are still mindless. They are still menacing after they've died. 
But George Romero's first zombie film shifted everything from then on to what we readily recognize as a zombie movie. George Romero was born in New York to Anne Dvorsky and George Romero, who's not George Romero Sr. because they didn't have the same middle initial. Okay. But she was Lithuanian. His dad was Spanish, uh, having arrived in America as a young man. George, the younger one, uh, little boy George, went to Carnegie Mellon when he was older. Um, He also rented movies, I found, uh, when he was much younger, including, I forget what the movie is called, but it was from 1958. And he and Martin Scorsese were the only two who ever rented that movie uh, to play on their own projectors at home. Just kind oh, of wow. a happy coincidence. Interesting. All right. uh, but he graduated from Carnegie Mellon in 1960 and immediately set about directing and shooting, including commercials, uh, including one for Mr. Rogers, where he got a tonsillectomy. Really? Yeah. I found that really fun. Huh. Yeah. George Romero, of all people. Mm-hmm. In the neighborhood. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So he started an independent company. Uh, and what I what I find interesting here is he's still staying as far away from Hollywood as an American director could and filmmaker could uh, for much of his early career. Now, this movie, Night of the Living Dead, never mentions the word zombies. Romero himself said that he, yes, was inspired by other zombie movies and novels, specifically I Am Legend. Oh, okay. Which is really interesting to me because that book and that movie that was based on it, the first one, uh, had creatures that were much more vampiric than zombie. And Romero figured that he should go a different direction from the vampiric zombies that were in it. Okay. He admitted to cribbing from Matheson's book. Yeah. uh, The I Am Legend book. He said, quote, I had written a short story, which I had basically ripped off from a Richard Matheson novel called I Am Legend. Uh, But he wanted to do more than just a remake. So, quote, I thought I Am Legend was about revolution. I said, if you're going to do something about revolution, you should start at the beginning. I mean, Richard started his book with one man left. Everybody in the world had become a vampire. I said, we got to start from the beginning and tweak it up a little bit. I couldn't use vampires because he did. So I wanted something that would be an earth-shaking change. Something that was forever and something that was really at the heart of it. I said, so what if the dead stopped staying dead? And the stories are about how people respond or fail to respond to this. That's really all the zombies ever represented to me. In Richard's book, the original I Am Legend, that's what I thought that book was about. There's this global change, and there's this one guy holding out saying, wait a minute, I'm still a human. He's wrong. Uh, Go (laughs) ahead, join them. You'll live forever. Uh, In a certain sense, he's wrong. But on the other hand, you've got to respect him for taking that position. End quote. Okay. So he's very much on purpose deciding yeah. what if the dead don't stay dead. Now, what comes after that is kind of like uh, anytime my daughter and I decide to like world build a little bit, I'm yeah. like, okay, you want to, let's start with the city. She's like, great. Okay. Uh, where is the city located? Oh, it's on the coast. Great. Okay. Do they fish? Do they do this? And then we just start answering and asking questions back and forth, yeah, yeah. back and forth, yeah, yeah. right? So he's kind of doing the same thing. Now, this movie is set in Pennsylvania, um, where, what I find interesting here, it's quite the subversion. White people are the background to a black man as your protagonist. Yes. Now, Romero claimed that he actually casted based entirely on auditions, um, which means he didn't actually cast a black man on purpose. He just cast the best actor he found, who was black. Yeah. He fell over backward into being subversive. Yeah. 
Um, it cannot be ignored, though, the subversive impact here. Uh, and as always, arterial intent is... Means squat. Yeah, exactly, limited. Um, now, he cast a black man as a lead in the movie in 1968. Yes. Starts filming in January. I think it finishes up like... A, I think it was like a month. Um, so it wasn't a reaction to King's murder. No. Um, but a lot of people tried to ascribe that to it. He's like, no, dude, I was trying to find a distributor when I heard yeah. King had been killed on the radio. Yeah. Uh, but in Pennsylvania, uh, there's no natives. There's yeah. no exoticism. It's much more basic and generic, uh, a setting. Yeah. And Romero actively avoided any similarities between the Haitian zombies and his own. Although later he'd claimed that he took inspiration from them, he also was actively avoiding them. Now, this means that there's no malevolent intelligence guiding the zombies. No, they're just spontaneously rising from right. a grave. And, that's and there's no explanation why. Exactly. Well, there are some explanations, but they're flawed narrator explanations. Yeah. They're... Scientists on the radio theorizing. And when you don't have a malevolent intelligence guiding your zombies, it becomes a phenomenon. And a phenomenon begs explanation. And that begs subtext. Okay. Prior to 68, the malevolent intelligence running thoughtless corpses that were reanimated was a thing. Maybe there was an occasional breakthrough, as we talked about last time, due to the power of lady boners or whatever. <laughs> but basically... That was your zombie movies, malevolent yeah. intelligence guiding thoughtless folks. Now, what I find interesting is that both fascism and communism, as seen by Americans and other colonial powers, definitely had mindless fo followers. Oh, yeah. Okay, so in, yeah. in the war and then in the Cold War, I mean, it's, it's very much talked about the hordes. Your mom was afraid of the Reds. Oh, yeah. Um, we've talked about it a number of times. Hell, the movie Top Gun, you never see the faces of the bad of the, guy pilots. Of the Soviet pilots, just, yeah. You, or even if they're Soviet, you just yeah. see a Red Star, you know? Yeah. Uh, so uh, they they had mindless followers, both in fascism and communism. And, of course, people horseshoe argumented it. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, endlessly, yeah. But those mindless followers followed a leadership cast or a specific leader. Okay. okay, an evil that you can decapitate, as shown in Italy in 1944. Yeah. yeah. Uh, almost literally. Uh, and yeah, I everything... was going to say, or hang. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but like, if you take out the leadership of a fascist state, you can denazify them, right? Everything goes back to the way it was, more or less, right? Um, and that was the hope for communism, although yeah. I would say that was the flaw in the fight against communism, one of many, yeah. uh, that, that doesn't exist. Uh, because when Ho Chi Minh died, North North Vietnam still kept being North Vietnam. Oh, yeah. They still kept doing what they were doing. Just yeah. like when they imprisoned uh, no, no uh, no no, Vo Nguyen Giap. Yeah, yeah. Um, when they imprisoned him and his wife, he still kept going. Yeah. Uh, but... So it was. So German denazification can happen when you get rid of Hitler. It cannot afterwards. Or, or it cannot if you don't. The hope was post-Soviet Russia, you could do the same thing. The hope was Haiti post-U.S. Uh, occupation. Mm -hmm. You could do that. But, but Romero's world that he's created, no source uh, of, of the zombie infestation. In fact... Um, the, the best you get is a very vague radio broadcast where a scientist is hypothesizing about the potential cause. He says that radiation emanating from a Venus space probe that exploded in the Earth's atmosphere did something. 
but he's not sure. And yeah. the the very unsureness of the scientific community adds to the terror. Yeah. Well, there, because there's no there's no rational explanation for it. Right. It is to to get all Stephen King dance macabre again, mm-hmm. uh, which is perfect because we're talking about horror sure. uh, tropes here. Uh, it is it is the Dionysian nature of mm-hmm. the uh, as as you say the phenomenon. Yes, that is that is part of the horror. We yeah. don't know where it came from. We don't know what their what their motive is. Right. Uh, I think they can't be reasoned with. They can't they be reasoned be with. Cannot be halted. I mean, it's it is it is classic primordial monster. Yes. Kind of storytelling. And but even monsters are singular. You can oh, yeah. you can rip off the arm of Grendel. Yeah. You can stab the serpent. You can cut off and burn the Hydra. Yeah. You can strangle the lion. You could do shit, but in this there, well, it the the very fact that it's that it is the dead. Right. You know. Yeah. Uh means that it's it is it is too massive to to overcome. Um I think one of the lines in the film, if I'm remembering right, is somebody says, well, that's not really why it's happening. It's happening because hell is full. That's later. That's later. That's in a different movie. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's that one is in Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead. Okay. Yeah. Or maybe it's Day of the Dead. No, I think it's Dawn of the Dead. Okay. Anyway, there's there's never conclusive evidence showing the reason for this. Yeah. But more importantly, it doesn't actually matter what the cause is. Narratively, it's not right. important. Our protagonists aren't interested in reversing anything. Uh, neither is anyone else that you run into in this world. In fact, everyone just wants to survive yeah. and literally just survive to the next <clears throat> minute. Yeah. And the radio also gives us that information, too. Uh, the radio says uh, it's been found that a gunshot basically to the dome uh, or a heavy blow to the dome will kill them. So you can double kill them. You can yeah. double death them. Like they're they're walking around undead. You can make them dead again. Yeah. If you inflict, if you hit them, yeah. if you inflict significant enough cranial trauma. Exactly. Yeah. Now this means though that either it's gunfire, bullets run out, and you miss, or up close and personal where yep. they can get to you as well. Now from a filming perspective, this is clever writing because it makes filming easier, especially when you're on a low budget. If you can write something in that makes sense to what else is going on and justifies the angles that you take, it's so much better. You can keep your shots tight and up close for drama or have them be gunshots from a distance for a less personal approach. And to cut down on the amount of money you have to spend on makeup. Yeah, not only makeup, but also lighting and making everybody wait while you get shit right for the next shot. Yes. You can be like, okay, we need eight reaction shots of you firing a rifle. There you go. We need, uh, okay, now we need you, you know, today's the day where we're going to do all the bludgeoning scenes. You know, okay. stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. Really... Now, it also mentions that people are also taking things into their own hands on the radio. Uh, armed posses are going around killing ghouls. They do use the word ghouls. Nice. Uh, who are clearly cannibalistic zombies. Okay. Uh, never mentioned zombies, though. Another news report on the radio indicates, which again, by the way, on the radio. So you've got technology bringing you the narrator's voice. Mm-hmm. It's the box text, you know. Um, another news report indicates that the levels of the, quote, mysterious radiation in the area have been increasing, suggesting that the phenomenon is going to become even more widespread than it already is. 
but also that the situation is going to be under control soon. If we can control the radiation, we can control the spread. Okay. So the reporter asks if ordinary people can fight off the attacks, and the sheriff confidently tells him that shots to the head, blows to the head with blunt objects, and fire are all effective against these hordes. Except fire takes time to do its job. Right. So for a certain period of time, you just have burning zombies trying to kill you. Right. So you burn them after the fact. Okay. Oh, okay. Stack right. them up. Like knock cardboard. them. Knock them down, and yep. then and then cremate. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Now the chief weapon uh, that the undead, the zombies, have is that they mob you. Yeah. They, they have numbers. Uh, they're unthinking, unrelenting, unhesitating numbers. Their menace, therefore, is real. It is palpable, and it is deadly and more importantly it's mundane okay explain that last but in what sense do you mean mundane there's no magic to how they kill you okay and all right there it is it can yeah. be a threat as a result okay it is it is so simple that even a child could do it yeah okay now in this particular one i don't think they had any child zombies. no they, they didn't they didn't kid zombify anybody but in the i think first they one. did in the second and in, know they did in, the third. in the third one yeah. i remember very very specifically god the kid zombie in the third one mm-hmm. messed with me hmm. uh like like woo. yeah whoa now their menace is real yeah their menace is palpable and their menace is deadly yes right uh, the protagonists are driven to great stress regarding the zombies. Communication will break down between your protagonist and everybody else. Fights will occur. People get lost in the melee. And eventually our protagonist is killed by well-meaning people who thought he was a zombie. Yeah. And the problem, after he's killed, he gets thrown on the pile. They make a bonfire. Yeah. And they move on. The problem still exists. People are still dealing with it in ways that are both helpful and maladaptive. And the story begins as it ends in the middle of an ongoing crisis. There's no fix. There's no resolution. Oh, wow. Yeah. Boy, the narrative arc of that movie just changed for me completely. (laughs) Like, oh, damn. All right. I mean, you know, nobody really discovered anything about themselves. Yeah. Yes, they got along better. Yes, there were interactions that furthered the plot, but... There's a deeply kind of nihilistic streak to that. Very well put. That's... Wow. Uh Uh-huh. There's a lot to Like, that's past existentialism to straight up nothing means anything. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The Holy only thing that matters crap. is surviving to the next minute. Yeah. Morality is is subjective. Fairly unimportant. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now I want to unpack oh. a lot of things about this thing, but fuck. Yeah. That, wow. That that went from being, man, that movie's a downer to man, that's uh-huh. depressing. Uh huh. Like, wow. Okay. Oh yeah. Damn. Now, first thing I want to address is the writing. Okay, because the writing is elegant, and I mean elegant in the same way that a in scientific a theory sense. is elegant. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it does a lot with a little. Right? Yeah, you don't need to explain what zombies are because we have the radio exposition for that. Okay, and the radio exposition does two things there: it explains what zombies are, mm-hmm. and it heightens the tension uh, and raises the fear. So it's doing double duty. It's it's kind of like everything that's being used is doing multiple things at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to explain why they are the way they are because the radio exposition has an unsteady explanation. 
that in itself highlights the fact that this is a problem beyond our grasp. Okay. Yeah. And that cause that uh, ultimately points out that the cause is frankly secondary to our survival. Is unimportant. Yeah. Uh, you don't have much in the way of special effects either, or acting needed even, uh, since the zombies are just smashing and stumbling around. Yeah. They mob you. Uh, so the tension. So so where you see one, you see many. And to get away from one, you still have to get away from the many. And that's a forever fear. And you have to constantly have your head on a swivel because mm-hmm. if you see these over here, you don't know where there are stragglers. Right. Which just makes me think of Dare Reese all over again. <laughs> like, yep. God almighty. Yes. Yeah. So the tension increases for the protagonist as the zombies are an unrelenting horde with nothing to protect or keep safe. You don't get to attack their strategic safety point. No. They don't have one. They don't no, need it's, one. You know, okay, 68, uh-huh. what what this, th- another parallel that this this immediately brings to mind to me is asymmetric warfare. I was going to say Tet Offensive. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. You know. Um, they mob you. They chase you up to the second floor of, uh, the, of the building. Of the yeah, building. yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and again, mm-hmm. you, you can't. You you have strong points that are critically important to you, right? They, or at least in in the in the imperialist perspective, yeah. you can't get to theirs. You you can't the very, get to yeah. that. At the very least, you can't get to theirs because there's you know a wall of them between, between you and you and, you, all you, and yeah. you and all of it. Um, and in the case of in, in the actual case of the zombies, there it just just doesn't exist, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean the 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 uh, zitgeist connection to uh, asymmetric warfare in Vietnam is mm-hmm. hard to avoid now that we're talking about it. Well, and there you go with the uh, it used to be fascists because it was mind control, and yeah. now it's a diffused everybody. Well, now it's now it's communists, which it was before, but now the nature of that, the perception of the nature of that, yeah. of that enemy mm-hmm. has changed yes because of yes. vietnam yeah um and i'm sure i mean this probably wasn't front of romero's mind but i mean subconsciously that's that's what was going on in the news absolutely. every night absolutely you know? and i mean you know that's that's what he was growing up with too was the fear of communism yeah you know as as, as being whether or not he was afraid of it and and by all accounts he seems a, a fairly leftist fellow yeah um but yes and, and then on top of that, the one thing that they do have is just a hunger that drives them toward you to destroy you. They're going to consume you. Yeah. So, like, how, now, do, you, how do you keep them from that goal? In the first movie, yeah. I don't remember. Do we see anybody turned? No. In the first, okay, no. They drag you down and they devour you. Yeah. And and you you just go down screaming under right. a wall and then of we, grabbing arms. Yeah. And, and then, then we and then pan we, to someone else. We pan to somebody screaming yep. at your at and your running. indescribably awful fate. Yep. Okay. Yeah. But we don't we don't see somebody being zombified. Correct. By right. The we attack do not of the horde. see the confusion. Okay. Yes. Okay. And I don't think he had that in mind at that point. I no, he did. Yeah. Well, looking at looking at what the not explanation for what's going on right. is, he didn't have that in mind. Right. And and quite frankly, seeing it featured so dramatically in the second movie. 
you will find. Um, and and there's some serious stigmata shit going on there, by the way. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah. Now, okay. uh, the the other thing is you can end the story whenever you really want to. Um. Yeah. Because. Well, because there isn't really an ending. Right. Well, I mean, when we when we get into talking about how right. that narrative ends, right? Like it would it would be the the postmodern kind of thing to do would then be oh well okay Ned Stark is dead now we're going to start following this character over here hey we have a new protagonist like yeah, because because the crisis isn't over yeah and you know and everything is morally gray anyway so we're going to now move over mm-hmm. here and you know run with it well and the protagonist at the end of the movie he could have lived just as easily as he could have died yeah like narratively it still didn't make a difference if he'd lived um, you could have him join the posse. Yeah. If he died, it's because the posse killed him. Um, and you could make all the protagonists secondary to the overall trauma and the menace that was brought about by the world that you've written into existence anyway. Yeah. Which is frankly what's happened. If Ben had lived, that is our main character's name. If he had lived, he would have joined a posse and he would have gone along with them. Uh, the problem still isn't getting solved. No, uh, not permanently anyway. Yeah. And since he died, they put his corpse on the bonfire with the other corpses and therefore there's no mystery to solve. There's no, did we get the right guy? It's just a quick moving forward. And that means that we get to play with all sorts of metaphor when we're unpacking this because Romero has given us such a gift here. Yeah, I don't I don't want to say it's a it's a blank slate to put whatever we want to on it, but there's there's a lot of room for interpretation. Uh-huh. Like you can you can put a whole lot of context uh-huh. on that. And since every movie from this point forward as far as zombie movies goes is either a response to or a continuation of this type of zombie with very minimal differentiation, we can look at what each one was trying to say through their zombies. So, okay. First, I'm going to take a look take Romero at his word. I always like doing that first because it's it's the easiest, right? Yeah. He cast Dwayne Jones as the lead because Dwayne Jones was the best actor that Romero auditioned. That's what he said. Okay, cool. However, the fact that Dwayne Jones is black in 1968, even though like I said, filming wrapped up before King was shot, so it's, it wasn't tied to that. It absolutely adds a racial component to it, whether Romero meant to or not. Uh, First, where are the zombies from? The ground. Yeah, right? Like, But they're from Pennsylvania. Okay. Right? Yeah. Uh, And uh, that's the mainland. Okay. That's white bread America. Oh, yeah. No, it's it is it is totally middle America. And that part of where it takes place is small town. Yeah. I mean, it's literally two hours away from the main city. That's what Barbara and her brother Tom, I think. Yeah. They're coming to get you. Right. Uh, But they're arguing about having to go all the way out to the cemetery to lay a wreath. Yeah. Um, And it's two hours of, of a drive away from a main town. So, uh, you know, uh, I would just point out that in every other zombie movie, they removed black people and pushed them to the background at best. And they centered white intelligence and avarice in those films. In this one, a zombie movie is following a black man as he attempts to survive in an unending menace and threat to his life. That's being created by a bunch of white zombies. Right. 
Okay. So, I mean, what, yeah. is, what is the menace here? What man, are the zombies? Are man, they... there's an allegory there. Holy. Yeah. Is there's it... any number of allegories wrapped up in that. Yeah. American culture, police brutality, white supremacy. It's 19-fucking-68. Watts happened two years earlier. Uh, Detroit has burned <clears> down. <throat> yeah. Uh, there's a lot of shit going on racially. So what are the zombies representing, if not a permanent threat to him as yeah. a black man? Now, Jones himself played against type in terms of what audiences were used to seeing from a black uh, person on screen. Uh, he played against what Romero had envisioned, too. Now, remember, Romero wrote the part colorblind. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Romero had him as a, a semi-generic, not black, not white uh, truck driver. Um, Carl Hardman, who was one of the main producers of the movie, he said, quote, the script had been written with the character Ben as a rather simple truck driver. His dialogue was that of a lower class, uneducated person. Dwayne Jones was a very well-educated man, and he simply refused to do the role as it was written. As I recall, I believe that Dwayne himself upgraded his own dialogue to reflect how he felt the character should present himself. Nice. And they trusted his acting chops to do the job the right way. Yeah. Uh, and they let him do the work that he thought he should do, which I think is uh, there. There are different kinds of directors out there. There are some who are auteurs. In other words, yeah. they torture their, their cast. <laughs> um, and they're control freaks. And there are others who are like, I hired you to do this job. So do it. Yeah. I'll We'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, so... I think this was option B there. <clears throat> but also allowing that choice and not clamping down on that choice. Going, no, 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 no. He's supposed to be a truck driver. You need to dumb him down. Yeah. Uh, allowed uh, and, and not not insisting on a very specific character type. Um, it allowed Dwayne Jones to subvert uh, the audience's expectations. Because okay. you're following a black man who is not talking as you have seen black men talk in movies for the most part. Yeah. Now, so far, Romero's genre-defining movie, which he didn't set out to make as such, is a heaping helping of subverting audiences and societal expectations. The movie itself is kind of pulling at a hidden fortress. Okay. Um, we see Barbara and her brother, Ben, bickering as they visit their dead father's grave. Yeah. Right? Uh, he's antagonizer. She's upset. And so far, it's a pretty stock relationship to open a movie with. You've got yeah, you know, yeah, people yeah. bickering. Uh, it's like grown-up Hansel and Gretel with some baggage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's through them that we're introduced to the menace of the film. Uh, her brother's name is Johnny, by the way, and he gets killed by the ghouls. Um, and and so we don't actually... Uh, we, we follow them, and they're not even the main characters. Star Wars did this, too. Yes. Okay. Now, Star Wars comes after this, but, yeah. you know. Uh, and so, uh, Brother Johnny gets killed, and the formerly formerly bickering, baggage-besotted, beautiful blonde Barbara betakes herself to a bucolic safety, bounding while bedraggled, bedeviled, and beset by beastly baddies before bumbling into Ben. Yeah. You, you spent some time putting that sentence together. <laughs> Didn't you, B? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I do be like that. Yeah. Uh, but Shit. <laughs> we don't see him until one of the other two siblings finds him 14 minutes into the film. Oh, wow. We're led from whom we expect to be the main character, blonde white woman, to the real protagonist. And it's another inversion or at least a thwarting of audience expectation. Our hero is not who we think it is. And yet 
everyone is still as hopeless and still as damned by this menace as we expected Barbara to be. Yeah. So we've subverted it, and at the same time, they're just as fucked. Yeah. <laughs> More so, yeah. actually, because for 1968, that ending was... Yeah. That was not how these movies ended in right. 1968. Right. You know, the, the Apollonian wins... You know, whatever Apollonian shit you got going on at the end of the movie, that's going to win. Exactly. Like, no, no, we got to uphold the social order. Right. You know. Yeah. And Romero went far from the tree. Yeah. And and, nice. Thanks. And, and, uh, uh, you know, Romero just looked at that and went, "Eh, nah, no, no, I, I think, I think that's not the uh, world I've created. Nihilism. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, Star Wars did this too. It took them 22 minutes to get to Luke in the first movie. I would say Star Wars was a hell of a lot more hopeful. Well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the opening sequence, by the way, has them driving up to a ceremony, uh, cemetery, uh, which makes sense. But uh, so they're driving toward death. Okay. And what's interesting in that is in the first shot of them driving up, there's an American flag. And now it makes sense that it's probably a Memorial Day thing because he complains about the sun being up so late. So that puts it into okay. early summer. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's the only flag that's there in an empty cemetery at 8 p.m. And it specifically says 8 p.m. because he is complaining about the sun about, starting out okay, at 8 yeah. p.m. They're basically driving into trouble, and that trouble is heralded by the American flag. <laughs> yeah. Now, I want to get back to Dwayne Jones, though. So the character he played, Ben, is quick thinking, he's decisive, and he's intelligent. And he slaps a white woman who's gone hysterical. Yeah. Now, even if Romero didn't mean it, this is pretty shocking to the audience's expectations. Yeah. Remember, only one year earlier did Americans see an interracial couple on the big screen in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Wow. And in that same year, In the Heat of the Night came out, and it saw a black man slapping a white racist in the face in retaliation for being slapped. Yeah. Both of those, incidentally, played by Sidney Poitier. That's true. Yeah. So only a year later, let's there combine we go. the two. Let's combine the two. So Ben and Barbara are now stuck together in a house that they don't own, and I really like that idea. And and they have to rely on each other for survival. Now, Ben takes a quick lead, and he begins to do what a capable person would do. He assesses the capabilities of the zombies by listening to the radio. And then he sets to work slowing them down and stopping them. He tears apart a door. He gets an ironing board. He boards up the windows and the doors. Yes. Earning himself, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully enough points to at least get, you know, a good rifle. Right. But instead in the he, process. And he does, actually. He does. Because he trades in his tire iron for the rifle that he finds in the yeah. house. Yeah. Now, at this point, the people who've been hiding out in the basement show up. Okay. Harry Cooper, an older white man who clearly thinks that that means he should be in charge. His wife, Helen, uh, and their little daughter, Karen, who is injured, uh, as well as a young teen couple, Tom and Judy. Uh, a fairly middle-aged uh, or a middle American white family dynamic. Uh, yeah. You could say that this was all one family. It's not, but they're yeah, acting I mean, as they're, a family. Yeah. Barbara fades into the background after they show up too, because she's, you know, one of many white people that yeah, yeah. Uh, Ben is having to deal with. But also more importantly, uh, there are two men here, ladies. Go, go talk yeah. over there. Yeah. Uh, so we see Ben. 1968, the grownups are talking. Exactly. So. We see that Ben, in this exchange, is maintaining his identity and his agency in an all-too-familiar paradigm. Uh, The racial tension is there, but it's not central to the story. 
because it wasn't written as central to the mm-hmm. story. If if Ben had been white, it would it would have been be it would have been it would have been the same story. Same story. But the loading, the emotional exactly. loading, would have been very different. But it yeah. it would have been it would have been more about which one of us is going to be the alpha, right? And there would not have been the again, extra the, societal the, expectation. The, yeah, yeah, and loading. therefore yeah. subversion because Ben does because take the Ben lead. doesn't knuckle yeah. under. Yeah. Now it's it's woven into the fabric of the survival story because yeah. they casted Ben or they casted uh, Dwayne Jones. Now, just to dig a little deeper, the black man did all the labor in the house. Wow. And now the older white man shows up after it's done and wants to assume leadership. Yeah. And by proxy of that, credit for the work. Yeah. All the Order while, everybody around. Yeah. All the while, he was hiding out with his family away from the danger. Oh yeah. Interestingly, Harry and his family are the only people who have last names. And you oh. you know what a Cooper is, too. Yeah. Somebody who makes barrels. Uh, barrels. Yeah. Someone who their occupation. So the name is based on the occupation of someone who has expertise with binding wood together in a sturdy way. Uh, okay. And yet this family didn't do that. Didn't now, do that. I don't think Romero got all up into the name business. Yeah. Like me when I play D and D. No. Um. But nobody gets yeah. all up into the name <laughs> business like you do when yeah. you play D and D. Uh. But at the same time, it is just kind of interesting. Funny how these things fall together. Well, yeah. 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 And he's acting like a bunghole. So, nice. Nice. Uh. Well, Harry's well wife well Helen. Done. Uh, focuses only on her daughter's infection, which is a fair thing to do. Uh, she does disagree with her husband, but not really forcefully, uh, because she's still still too focused on her own family to address what she's seeing as wrong. Uh, now, the, the teenagers try to be the connective tissue between Harry and Ben. Oh, come on, guys. We're all on the same team here, that kind of thing. Now, again, if, if, if Ben was white, uh, then it wouldn't really have that kind of impact. But instead... You have a woman, a group of young white yeah, people telling a telling black man in, telling, yeah, to calm down. And you have a woman disagreeing with how the older white person is treating the black man, but not actually standing up to it. So, yeah, white lady allyship being what being, it's being, yeah. So, all right, yeah, wow, you have all that, that all that dynamic, purpose. yeah, yeah, as you said, elegant. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, having Harry, there's another part where um, Harry asks Ben, is this your house? Uh, which, again, if Ben had been white, it's a, it's got a different tone to it. Uh, or Ben telling Harry, he says, quote, uh, get the hell down in the cellar. You can be the boss down here. I'm down there. I'm the boss up here. If Ben were white, it wouldn't have an allegorical reference to North and South. Oh, okay. Now, playing opposite to trope, Ben, the black man, is the only one who survives the ordeal. Yeah. This keeps happening in Romero's movies, by the way. So yeah. I, I need to I, I need to go and look at where the black guy dies at the beginning of the horror film. Yeah. Starts as a trope. Because in Romero's, that's almost always the guy who survives. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, because I think I think after a certain point, Romero was aware of the Certainly trope. By the second movie, by the second he movie, was he was totally, messages. he was yeah. totally, he was totally aware of that trope, and he yes. and he is consciously throwing a finger to it. Yes, because yes. you know, it, so, it deserves to have the finger thrown at it. And know? what I, 
What I love here also is that he survives the living dead, but he doesn't survive a well-meaning posse sharpshooter. No. He isn't killed by the menace directly. He's killed by the incompetence of those who are trying to help. Yeah. Now, this could simply be an issue of panic. The fact that an all-white posse kills a black man who's emerging from a basement when the radio had earlier said and warned people that zombies who were called ghouls uh, were, uh, were, quote, things that look like people but act like animals. That carries more weight when you cast Dwayne Jones instead of uh, uh, yeah. It also, to me, reminded me a lot of Eric Maria Remarque's uh, book, All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, yeah. That last scene. Yeah. Where he gets killed. Like, yeah. there's no point. He pokes his head up and yeah. crack. Yeah. But nowadays, it reminds me of fill-in-the-blank news story about a group of police officers fearing for their life against an unarmed black man and killing him. Yes. So what killed Ben was not the living dead. What was a greater threat to him in 1968 through most of the film was the white people that he was stuck with. <laughs> and what killed him at the end was white after people. he survived everything was white American self-appointed armed police. Okay. Now, Romero didn't mean any of that. <laughs> but wow. But, but there it is, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So from this movie forward, there was no evil intelligence behind the zombies in any major film. It was much more of a plague. It was much more of an infestation. It wasn't something that you could just stop or reverse most of the time either. It was something that you could survive and outlast, and the odds are you weren't going to even do that. Um, there was a poorly made drive-in released film called I Eat Your Skin. Wow. Yeah. Now, it was released in 71, but it had actually been made in 65, so it actually predates Romero's concept of zombies. So when it does get released, um, I believe it was titled Zombies originally, uh, and it was supposed to be a double feature with Frankenstein meets the space monster. Um, it, <laughs> it, 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 it attempted... <laughs> It attempted huh. to depict the Caribbean idea of zombies. Okay. Um, and so it does, it, because it was made pre-Romero, um, it does have that. There's a malevolent intelligence. Okay, aspect. yeah. And it, it is set in Haiti, uh, but it it was released after Romero. But so the reason why that inconsistency exists is because it was made prior. Yeah. Now, what followed 1968's uh, watershed moment was was a growth of zombie movies in other countries, many of which still maintained the cult leader, the intelligent malevolence, the controlling zombies to some extent or another. But the American films kenned closer and closer to what Romero had wrought. I always find that interesting. Well, because, because the zitgeist here elsewhere. in... Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The zitgeist elsewhere was still... I mean, if we're talking about any place in Western Europe, mm -hmm. they were still operating under the threat of, you know, Communism. us us and the Soviets exactly. starting to lob bombs at each other. And, and so over their culture. And and to yeah. yeah. And so they were they were worried. That's that's yeah. what was gonna scare them. Now for us, we were seeing, as we mentioned before, we mm -hmm. were seeing uh, the the effect of you know late stage imperialism and right. and uh, asymmetric warfare 
And there was the the Red Scare of the fifties. There was McCarthy. Well, there yeah, there yeah. had been the Red Scare of the fifties, but again, the Red Scare of the fifties mm-hmm. was was more in line with the idea that there's this evil intelligence who is suborning our, yeah. you know, the com intern is yeah, is yeah, working yeah. through people within the State Department. This is new in that oh, I see what you're saying, we yeah. can't stop this. Mm-hmm. You know, cutting the head off the snake, there's there's going to be a new head to the snake, or the snake right. is headless. Like, right. our concept of the threat that we perceive yes. had shifted. Yes. And we no longer had room in our horror stories for a sorcerer running everything. Right. Now, it was simply they're all out there mm-hmm. and they're coming like, like, coming you know, get you, like, yeah, like, like, said, yeah, yeah, like, like the Chinese in, in Korea, yep. you know, they're, they're just, they're going to come over and there's, we, we don't have enough numbers, right. you know, um, also a horde, also a horde referred to as such. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, by this time we would have also known, uh, cause I've talked about this before. We would have, we would have by this time had information about Soviet doctrine and right. Chinese, you know, military doctrine. Absolutely. And that literally was, we just have more people. Yeah. Yeah. Like, 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 you know, in, yep. in, in terms of armor, mm-hmm. the Soviet doctrine was, uh, they need four men to crew a tank. Right. Because they have a driver, a, or a, from bottom of hierarchy to top, mm-hmm. loader, driver, gunner, commander. Mm-hmm. Every Soviet tank, they developed auto loaders before we did. And mm-hmm. so they had driver, gunner, commander. Mm-hmm. So they automatically right. had a four to three advantage just, just from tank crews. Right, right. You know, just as, as an example of how that doctrine sure. worked. Sure, sure. And, uh, and, and so, I mean, we knew that. Right. And that informed this, this evolution of our perception of the threat. This is also the point at which I mm-hmm. think I want to say 1968, a little bit before this was when we started hearing about the missile gap. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, the Russians, the Russians have got more missiles than we do. We can't let them, you know, get the numerical advantage on us. Right. Never mind the fact, okay, the missile gap is kind of an artifact of the way the math gets done, number one. Right. Number two, our own technicians and scientists and engineers knew our missiles were more reliable. Also, they needed many... to have more rockets because they would right. try to launch three of them and two would take off. Right. And how many you know, times do you need to kill a person? Well, number one. Yeah. But, you know... And and so and so all of those issues, mm-hmm. I think our perception of the Soviet threat, I'm mm-hmm. putting in air quotes, and I, maybe I shouldn't because it, it was we had we had gotten into this conflict you sure. know, with them. And so there was a threat there. Um, but but our perception of the Soviet threat had changed. We were not as afraid of losing our agency. Right. As we were by that time of simply being overwhelmed and dragged under. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that there weren't American films that had zombies who were still under the sway of someone else. We did. There, there were still some that existed. Uh, many of which actually centered such things in references to Haiti, but these were films that were singular zombies used like attack dogs. So again, uh, okay. films that featured zombies, <clears throat> but not, not, zombie not films. yeah. 
Right. So, for instance, the Blood of Ghastly Horror, which was a name of a movie. Did Vincent Price have anything to do with it? No, oddly enough, I didn't find Cause, anything cause... with him, but I found so many movies with John Carradine in them. Really? All these zombie movies. Carradine. Like, every other one had John Carradine in them. Huh. Yeah. Kind of like Christopher Lee and Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Or Peter Cushing. Or right? one, one or the other. Right. Yeah. 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 It's the, the Hackman De Niro rule. Yeah. In the 19, <laughs> yeah. 1980s and 1990s, yeah. at yeah. some point on TV, or at any point on TV, you will find a movie with Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. Or Robert or De Niro. Or Robert De Niro. Yeah, no, it's true. So, uh, but yeah, this movie, Blood of Ghastly Horror, was a Frankenstein horror movie. And I don't mean that it was about Frankenstein. I mean, it was a few different movies that got stitched together uh, with the added plot device of a father seeking revenge on his son's tormentor and killer by going to Haiti and returning with a Haitian zombie to do this. So it was... Okay, wait. Yeah. Wait, hold on. Okay. Okay. So okay. he didn't... Mm-hmm. study how to create a zombie and try to find a way to like, you know, turn this guy into a zombie. Right. He went to Haiti. Yes. And got a hold of a zombie. Well, got to a hold bring of, back sort of. Yeah. Okay. So in 1965, there was a movie called psycho a go, go. <laughs> and it, <laughs> that's it, so, that's it, so sixties. Yeah. It okay. had been a jewel thief movie, a thriller, uh, that then got re-edited into a horror film. You know those uh, yeah. turn of this into a horror film <clears throat> yeah. trailers? It's yeah. so fun. Um, but do it with the whole movie. And then add a mad scientist plot for funsies. Okay. And then it was called The Fiend with the Electronic Brain in 1969. Okay. Then it got its final treatment, <laughs> complete with the oh Haitian my, Revenge Zombie oh in 1971. God. So, so just just butchered. Like, oh, just yeah. just take a, pair, take a yeah. pair of scissors to the print and mm-hmm. wow. Okay. So it, it Franken movie. Yeah. All right. I mean it became a zombie movie because people couldn't just leave it well enough alone. <laughs> and and you know, what do you get when you have a body that you, you know, reanimate and stitch a bunch of parts on? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Now there's another movie called Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, and that was I've heard that title before. Yes. Okay. That was a comedic and semi farcical take on zombie films. Using Romero's idea of uh, zombies, but being trapped in a house and getting attacked through the night. Uh, in this instance, it was an abusive director taking his actors to an island cemetery, abusing them, and pretending that the dead have come to life. Uh, then he does a ritual as a joke to bring the dead back to life. And then it actually brings the dead back <laughs> to life. And it actually works. And then everyone dies. And at the end, the zombies are getting on a boat to go back to the mainland. Oh, wow. Um, Wait. Yeah. It was on an island. They have enough agency or yeah. intelligence to get on a boat. Yeah. Okay. So, again, it's... it's. I mean, that's great use of the, oh, hey, Dionysian threat showing back up again. Right. You're not safe. Right. That whole trope. Right. But that's a kind of a big departure yeah. from zombie behavior it, it in is, the Romero model. It's also a comedy. Yeah, okay. And it's sense. farcical. Yeah. So. All right. Now, European, Central American, South American, Asian movies all start featuring zombies by the late 1960s. Okay. Most still have a malevolent intelligence. And uh, again, I think it's for two possible reasons. And these are mostly just my ideas. First, they might not have been as influenced by Romero's movies. Pretty simple and straightforward. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they might not right. have seen it, right? Second, and more interestingly to me, during the Cold War, there was, in fact, a malevolence that was zombifying the world. It was post-colonial superpowers doing it now. 
whether it's the U.S. or the Soviets, if you are not the U.S. or the Soviets, you are being controlled by someone. You above. are you yeah. are a client state. Yes, at yeah. best. Uh, so in America, the concern was far different, right? Uh, as we saw accidentally in Romero's movie in 68, American racism was <clears throat> an even bigger threat than the zombies. But the zombies themselves were still an unthinking, undirected, driven by their urge, urges, a group of white people who devoured everyone they accosted. It feels very much like cut out conformity uh, during the American uh, atomic age. Okay. You know? Okay. Um, so in the rest of the world, that's not the problem. No. That's that's leagues away from the problem. The problem is you've occupied us and set up a base. Yeah. Thanks for putting your missiles Thanks here. for planting your missiles in our backyard. Right. You yeah. know, now we have to. <laughs> Thanks for making us a target. Right. Yeah. Now, in the 1970s, zombie films again fall to the background. Uh, well, zombies in their films fall to the background, uh, and they become plot devices for other menaces in the film. Or they're more singular and they're less hoardy. You know, it's very often that there's a singular zombie. In The House of Seven Corpses, zombies were awakened by Satan worshippers, specifically an actress who is a Satan worshipper who reads the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is strangely written in Latin. Okay. Hold on. Yeah. Okay, a an actress, actress who's a Satan worshiper. Who's a, who's a Satanist, Satan worshiper. Yep. Okay. Reads the Tibetan Book of the Reads Dead. Reads the Tibetan Book of the Dead in Latin. Well, you know what the the in Latin part. I'm not even I'm not even going to worry about because we've already we've already departed <laughs> from our own premise. Yeah. So dramatically, <laughs> because that's that's number one. If if she's a Satan worshiper, what is she doing with a with a Tibetan, Tibetan book mystical book in the first place? Because that's Buddhism, mm-hmm. which doesn't believe in a devil, any devil, like at all. Um, I mean, as as part of core Buddhism, you know, folk yeah. beliefs within Buddhism are a different thing. And then the Tibetan Book of the Dead isn't even what you think as a Westerner. The Tibetan it's not a necromancy manual. Right. It it is about the 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 process of guiding the dead into their mm-hmm. next incarnation. Yeah. But but it's it's not like you can't take the passages of the Book of the Dead and turn yourself into a Tibetan version of a Bokor. Like that's right. not no, you're a psychopomp. Mm-hmm. You guide them to the next phase mm-hmm. on their journey. So so there's ignorance of but of course, Hollywood is ignorant of Buddhism. We we know this well, anyway. Also, it's 1974, yeah. and what had been really popular in the last couple of years had been Exorcist, The Exorcist, and, and possession Ro- movies, Rosemary's Baby, 68. Yeah. So okay. Those, yeah. Those things were extant. Oh. So this seemed like a good bridge between the two. But but like just do like 10 minutes of homework. Right. I mean, I understand they didn't have Google back then. Right. Okay, right. fine. They but, did but have public libraries go, back then, though. Go to the library. Yeah. Like, talk to the New York public librarian mm-hmm. and say, yeah. I need to know. I'm writing a movie. Right. I need to know this. And they'll find you a book. Yep. Read the fucking book. Yep. Well, this, but, this okay. movie ends with everybody being dead, not zombified. And the zombie inhabits the body of a minor character who then takes the corpse of his drowned girlfriend back to the grave with him at the end. So, again, a zombie film, no. 
A, z- a film that features zombies a bit? Yes. A film that features the word zombie and some undead. Undeadness, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that's an undead right. movie. I think you're right. And they use the word zombie, but that's yeah. not that's no. I don't think that's yeah. I don't think that qualifies. Now there is one movie post Romero, one of the only movies that's an American movie post Romero that retains the malevolent intelligence as well as the Haitian aspects of zombie lore. It's a black exploitation film called Sugar Hill from 1974. Ah. Sugar Hill is the name of a photographer whose boyfriend was killed by a local mob boss in Houston, uh, and she enlists the help of a Haitian voodoo queen to get revenge. Okay. This Haitian voodoo queen then summons <clears throat> Baron Samedi, the, lo- well, the Loa of yeah, the Yeah, Baron, yeah. Right? Specifically, uh, uh, to bring uh, Lord, his... is he is he Lord Saturday? One of his one of one of the wonderful things about uh, the the lore about the uh-huh. Loa is is there's this wonderful idea that they don't just have the one name. Baron right. Samedi goes by all of these nicknames. Yes, because depending on the circumstance, you might want to call him by his name. Right, but if you're talking about him, but you don't want to get his attention. Right, right. You 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 know refer to him by the nickname. Sure, and, you know yeah. yeah. But anyway, so sorry. he brings his army of zombies to kill all the gangsters and save the nightclub. Okay, it's that interesting. is that is. Definitely a black exploitation plot uh-huh. line, uh-huh. and I'm kind of here for it. Like, and here's why, right? Uh, you're using Haitian zombies, so they're black. Uh, you're you're bringing in Baron Samedi, so you've got a, a powerful black character, uh, and they're used to actually protect what property black folks have <clears throat> from the murderous predations of white gangsters. Yeah, I kind of, I, I mean, I get that, like, there are horror trappings here. But, but like I don't get I don't get how it's really a horror movie because right. yeah right. I don't yeah. I don't see I don't see the <gasps> terror right. like you know ooh spooky zombies yeah. but like beyond that like on a, on a related note mm-hmm. if if your if your victims in a horror movie mm-hmm. are awful enough people. Is it really a horror movie? Right, you start cheering for the good. You, you the, start you start monster. cheering for the monster. Yeah. Like uh, don't breathe. The, mm. the 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 there's there's a sequel coming out. Okay. Uh, that I've seen ads for on on Facebook. The the original premise of the film mm-hmm. is uh, the the original the first film is a uh, bunch of ne'er do wells uh, catch wind that you know the hermit the old blind hermit. Mm-hmm. has a whole bunch of money stashed away in his decrepit old house. And so they think they're going to break into the house and he's blind and, you know, they can, you know, they don't, they don't need to worry about him. Uh, they'll just, you know, they'll find the money and if they need to kill him, whatever, he's blind. Sure. Well, they get into his house and then they find out, no, no, um, he is blind, but you know, in that, in that way that Hollywood loves to do, he right. can, he can hear, you know, like a, like a bat in the dark and sure, all this sure. other stuff. And he is in fact a stone cold killer. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, they wind up trying to find a way to make him worse than the people who are breaking into his house. Spoiler alert. Uh, the, the, the criminals find that he's keeping a woman prisoner in his basement, uh-huh. but still, He's a badass As in that badassery. For, yeah, yeah, for me, like, if I don't break into somebody's house, I don't need to worry about them hunting me down in this way. Sure, sure. 
like the only reason the monster is coming after you is because you've crossed over into the monster's territory. Right. Which you did for nefarious purposes. Yeah, you transgressed on you purpose. You transgressed on yeah. purpose. Why do I care? Right. Like right. why like I mean what what, what no, that's mm-hmm. a horror movie is alien. Like mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. a horror movie. Night of the Living Dead is a horror movie. Right. Like so so in this case that you're talking about, I'm like, okay, these guys don't sound sympathetic. Like the vict- right. the monster's victims don't sound sympathetic. No. And why why it's a I- black exploitation film? Yeah, it's, I mean that's yeah. that's I mean the, that's so it's the, not really a horror genre. flick. Right. Yeah, the genre is okay. So notably, most of the movies post Romero still have people bringing the zombie menace upon themselves or traveling to it. Very few have it happen upon them, like in Romero's movie. I think that's pretty common for most horror films to begin with, though, as it's often a morality tale for youngsters or society in general telling them where to avoid going and what behaviors to avoid. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, look at any slasher flick. If you get laid, you're dead. Right. So in 1977, shockwaves hit the theater. Okay. The filmmakers admitted that they made a Nazi aquatic zombie film because they knew that they'd be filming in Florida and that the backers of the movie insisted on it being a horror film because horror movies have the best odds of making their money back. Okay, wait, 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 sure. wait, wait, wait. So it's another Nazi zombie horror flick. Yes. You said you said Nazi zombie. I said Nazi aquatic. Zombies. Nazi aquatic. Yeah, well, yeah, no, yes. I mean, but the aquatic is just like the environment. It's still a Nazi zombie yes. movie. Yes. Okay, yeah. and if there's any state in the country that's going to have that, it Florida. It's be Florida. Okay. Well, this way you can do underwater shit. Okay, yeah. yeah. All right. And Florida ends up being the s- scene for a couple other Nazi films, too. Or no, zombie films, too. Yeah. Uh, but yes, um, I, I find that last part especially noteworthy. Horror films tend to be single or at least very limited amounts of location shoots. They tend to have small casts. The horror yeah. is typically one thing or sometimes a small horde of something. Yeah. The shots that involve those horrors tend to be limited as well so as to heighten the tension. Well, if you if you have too big a set piece, mm-hmm. it stops being a horror movie and it becomes an action flick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, the shots that involve those horrors uh, are fewer and further between, and and you really set up the tension for them in the writing and in other ways. Uh, the film's budget, therefore, is not taken up with too many special effects or too much makeup, uh, as a limited number of shots are actually needed to establish and solve the danger. Usually, horror films star relatively unknown actors, uh, or actors who are on their way down, or John Carradine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's not that much camera work that's needed either. There's lots of close-ups. There's lots of medium shots. But that's about it. If you think about most, most yeah. horror films. Well, yeah. Um, nothing too creative needed there. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the nature the nature of the effects in a horror film, mm-hmm. typically, mm-hmm. not always, but typically, mm-hmm. um, are such that it is, it is most effective mm-hmm. if you don't ever see the monster in full lighting. Which brings me to the next point. They're okay. almost always shot at night. Well, yeah. So you don't have to worry about lighting that you can't control. This is true. So, uh, which means that your shoots are usually sl- uh, smaller shoots. Yeah. Your shoots are uh, usually packed in over a shorter period of time. The budget for a horror film is much easier to make the money back on 
just because of how because the outlay because the yeah. outlay is much smaller to begin with. Yeah. So back to shockwaves. The yeah yeah aquatic the, Nazi aquatic, aquatic Nazi zombie movie. A bunch of tourists are on a boat that goes through a creepy orange haze. It gets damaged and it has to shipwreck on a, on a reef. It's back in the day where we had coral reefs. Uh, it's kind of drawing on America's collective understanding of Gilligan's Island as well. A little bit there, yeah. Uh, they shipwreck and they take a glass bottom rowboat to the island. There's the captain, the captain's first mate, and then a whole bunch of people. Uh, the captain ends up dying uh, okay. under the water, probably drowned by the aquatic Nazi zombies. Um, everybody else takes the glass bottom rowboat to the island. Uh, on the island is, of course, a huge hotel uh, that has seen better days, and it has a recluse living there. Okay. On the ocean floor, the Nazi zombies are awakened. And eventually it comes out as they climb from under the surf onto the beach uh, that the recluse admits that, yes, in fact, the Nazis tried to make super soldiers who could be amphibious and lead assaults. Uh, and that he had, in fact, been their commander. But okay, it didn't work out, and they all attacked each other instead, and he had to scuttle the ship when the war ended, determined to live on his own on this island. That's his penance. Uh, he even tried commandeering his former troops. Uh, he goes down to the beach where the Nazis zombies are coming out of the water. Yeah. He tries to command them, uh, and uh, they ignore him. They don't listen, and I think they end up drowning him. In okay. fact, almost every death in this movie is a drowning death, come to think of really? it. Really? Yeah, kind of interesting. That's an interesting departure. It is. It is. Huh. Uh, less effects. Makes sense. Ultimately. Ultimately, know. yeah. Lower uh, budget. The party oh. barricades itself in the hotel's refrigerator. Okay, walk in, walk yep. in fridge. All right. Tempers flare. Yeah. Someone fires an actual flare gun. Okay. Uh, the party splits. The Nazi zombies seem content with drowning everyone, from what I could tell. Uh, eventually, the young and pretty protagonist and the captain's mate uh, are the only two left. Uh, the captain's mate actually was a little boy on Flipper. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and he said that this movie was the nadir of his career. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah 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 it sounds like it yeah. so they're trying to get into the glass bottom boat of course he ends up dying she ends up living and we see his corpse under the glass bottom rowboat uh nobody believes her and and then we kind of come full circle to the the end of the movie uh it's a voiceover on her part and she's talking about it and really what we come to find out is she's actually writing about it and no one's believing what she's writing in her journal so okay. the island forever remains a mystery Okay. The movie was panned. Uh, yeah, yeah. But there are... Just from that ending. Yeah. Yeah. There are a few things I think we could pull from it. First, okay. the zombies aren't under someone's thrall. Yes, clearly. Second, they're Nazi zombies. Yes. I mean, you don't mess with the classics. Right. Okay. Third, they're aquatic. Which is a departure. Yes. You don't see mm -hmm. aquatic zombies very often. True. And then finally, the goal was to escape them, not to destroy them or undo them. Yes. They're much more of a force of nature that's native to that particular setting, okay. uh, which both piques our anxiety about what happens upon such places, but also the relative safely of, as long as I don't go there, they won't bother me. Yeah. Uh, it may have been a bad movie, but... It sounds like it was. It, yeah. But it's definitely another in a long line of zombie movies that continues to push them as a corporate malevolence that gets activated more than it gets directed. 
okay, awakened, brought mm-hmm. brought about, mm-hmm. not you know you don't you don't intentionally make them right you do so kind of like godzilla you do something that leads to the kaiju rising up out of the ocean to you know ravage tokyo yes when and when i get to dead snow and i'm not going to get to it this this episode for certain but when i get to dead snow uh we're going to talk about uh how greed uh Mm -hmm. awakens all the nazi zombies in norway yeah and then we'll get to dead snow too and it gets (laughs) that that's clearly a comedy whereas the first one was tongue-in-cheek a horror film mm-hmm. but yeah okay so that brings us to dawn of the dead of 1978 uh and i think that's where i want to stop us here i think we'll start okay. next episode with dawn of the dead okay uh which is 1978 so we are okay. now 10 years on yeah well and more 10 years on from the watershed but uh from 32 to 78 that's 46 years. 46 years yeah so and then right. from 78 till now that's about 43 more years yeah so we're halfway, so we're halfway there we're halfway right. there so uh anything new that you've gleaned not really yeah. um i think the the orange mist part of the of the uh, yeah. aquatic Nazi zombie thing is cheap just, plot device. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and you know, you say it may have been a bad movie. No, no, no. Orange yeah. mist, right there. Yeah, right there. Yeah, we could. Well, I could say we could conclusively call it a, yeah. a pretty crummy film. Um, that's that's what's right now. Oh yeah, no, that's that's what's sticking with me right now. Yeah. Um, as an investment, it might have actually been a pretty good one. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I think just the the development of this really weird sub sub genre Mm -hmm. that we're talking about, like you know, you think about structurally how do horror movies work, right? And what's interesting is there are niches within horror mm-hmm. that are very particular. Mm-hmm. And like if you're trying to make a vampire movie and you wind up making a zombie movie instead. Right. It's just it's not, you know, people are people are going to look at it and they're going to go, well, it's it's a zombie movie. It's not really a, you know, fill in the blank. I, I feel like. Action movies, for example, are more forgiving. Yeah. Comedies, like subgenres of comedy, well, you know, is it a rom-com? Is it, you know, just, you know, slapsticks, you know, screw we don't make screwball comedies anymore, as we've, you know, talked about previously. Right. But, you know, I mean, look at the subgenres of comedy. It's like, well, as long as it's funny, who cares? Right, right. But if you're gonna tell a horror story. Yeah, you right. better you better get the right kind of horror story for what you're doing. You know, yeah. if you're if you're going to try to tell a vampire movie, the thematic elements that make it a vampire movie had better be on point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I mean, there's all kinds of stuff you could play around with. But, you know, at the end of the day, I better recognize it as a vampire movie. Mm-hmm. And there are so many things about modern zombie movies that kind of go against type. Mm hmm. Like in most horror movies, there is a malevolence, right? There is, there is the demon threatening possession. There is, and it's defeatable, you know, the ghost, it's defeatable, reversible, you know, there, there is the, the vampire or, or, you know, coven of vampires, uh, coterie of vampires, Mm -hmm. you know, there is the witch, whatever. Right. With zombie movies, there is, there is, there is the force. Yes. 
of them. Yes. And it is by design, by virtue of the fact that it has so many faces, it is faceless. And incompetent, ultimately. Yeah. And yet it still overwhelms you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and it's 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 a weird subgenre within horror. In 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 the way that it is it is so different in so many ways from the other the other ways that we like to scare ourselves. Or that some people like to scare themselves. I I as we've (laughs) said before, this is not a genre I tend to enjoy. Yes. Uh but you know, I could talk about it forever because it's fascinating. Sure, sure. You know. So I mean that's kind of I don't know, that's my riff on it anyway. Uh where where are you thought wise in this? Oh, um, I think, okay, when I eat my breakfast, yeah, I will very often have a bagel, yeah, and buttered, yeah, and a cup of coffee, okay, and probably 5% of the time will it be the perfect combination of temperatures, okay. So that when I bite into the bagel, it's just hot enough mm-hmm. that the the butter hits the roof of my mouth and it doesn't burn me, but neither am I left going like, oh, that could have been hotter. Yeah. And then I take a swig of coffee and it's just the perfect heat where it yeah. doesn't burn me or and I'm not sitting there going like, oh, I'm kind of missing some of the flavor here. And when those things collide, they taste so wonderful. There's just that heat and that yeah. savoriness and all that. Yeah. I think a good zombie movie is like that bagel and that cup of coffee. Okay. And unfortunately, through the 1960s and 70s... There were well, a lot of overheated bagels. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say <laughs> not even over... bagels. Yeah. I was going to say like uh, moldy bagels that were instead of dipped in locks, dipped in shit. And then... <laughs> somebody like whizzed in your coffee and then spilled half of it on the table for you anyway. And now yeah. you're sopping it up with your shit bagel. Yeah. Like that's what a lot of these were. Um, but, but every once in a while, and I don't, I honestly don't think night of the living dead is that bagel and coffee combo. Okay. I do think though that, uh, the, the dawn of the dead is Okay. Even though the acting is very 1970s, even though all the stuff, it's very dated. I think that Dawn of the Dead is very much that 5% of zombies okay. that is very well made. All right. So I look forward to, to yeah. sharing that one with you. Okay. Because uh, it, it because Romero is trying to make statements on purpose. Yeah. He didn't fall into it backwards the way right. he did the first time. Now right. he's like, oh, wait, hold on. I'm going to do this. I'm I gonna do get this, it I'm now. Okay. Yeah. 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 And he's a good enough director that he can make exactly. it work. Yeah. Exactly. So is there anything you want to recommend to our audience to read? Uh, well, I know I recommended it last time, but I'm going to do it again. Laura Olympus. Um, please go check it out. Um, it is on Webtoons, if I'm okay. remembering right. And uh, yeah, no, it's okay. it's an amazing series. Um, and and yeah, that's my that's my recommendation what is yours this time around marvel zombies okay so it's a five issue uh limited release it went from december through uh december 05 to april 06 um robert kirkman and was the writer and i forget the artist i think his last name was phillips 
Um, but uh, you could probably find it in a single uh, graphic novel. Yeah. But Marvel Zombies, because I'm mostly going to stick to movies. Yeah. But the MCU is such a big deal. Yeah. That I, I could see just dipping into talking about that for a little bit. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, but it is interesting that in December of 2005, basically in 2005, zombies invaded uh, the Marvel Universe and yes. took them over. Um, and we will get into why that is. Why do these movies keep coming out when they do? Yeah. Uh, but first, I had to get us into the genre itself. Okay. So. And actually, I, I just realized I have another I have another recommendation. Ooh, go for it. So I, I can't watch horror movies to save my life. Like, right. I, I can't get into them. But horror comics, mm-hmm. um, I sometimes regret reading them at, you know, 1130 at night. Uh, sure. You know, when my imagination is, is taking over. But um, I, can, I can read the daylights out of them. And one of the best ones that I can recommend is the Kurosagi corpse delivery service. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, which is a very long title. Uh, and Kurosagi is Japanese for black crane. Okay. Uh, and the, the, uh, conceit of the comic is a group of Buddhist seminary students Mm -hmm. who are misfits for various reasons. Uh, and are constantly broke. Uh, one of them, kind of the protagonist. It's an ensemble thing, but one mm-hmm. of them kind of tends to be kind of more in the protagonist role. Sure. Uh, the the kind of protagonist is the son of a couple of people who operate a shrine, so he's going to take over the shrine, and so that's why he's in seminary school. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out uh, he, uh, by touching a corpse... Mm-hmm he can speak to it and find out what what the dead person most wants. Oh wow. And so in a very Buddhist way, he he, you know, touches the body. Right. And the dead person will speak through him to say, I, you know, and 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 sometimes it's cryptic and they and they have to do detective work to figure sure, out, sure. you know, what it is. Um like in in one of the first episodes, it's uh, the body of a pop idol. Uh, and she wants, they, they think she wants to be reunited with her father. Mm-hmm. They find out she doesn't want to be reunited with her father. Her father was abusing her. Oh. And so anyway, okay. and, and at the very end, he, he usually winds up touching the corpse and the corpse rises up uh-huh. to get, you know, whatever their final wish is. And another member of the group is able to find corpses by dousing and all this kind of stuff. Sure, sure. And uh, so anyway, it's a very Japanese take on zombies. Right. That's actually very Buddhist and very like, because it's as you've, you all have heard me rant about mm-hmm. people not getting Buddhism right because it's done by a Japanese author where mm-hmm. Buddhism is part of their culture. He gets the Buddhism right. Nice. <laughs> And it manages to occasionally be really scary and disturbing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time it actually manages to be very darkly funny. Cool. So Kurosagi Corpse Delivery Service. All right. I was trying to look up the author. Um, People can look it up. But you can, you can look yeah. it up. Uh, published by uh, Kadokawa Shoten. Uh, in English, you can get it from Dark Horse. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it's a great series. It's a lot very of fun. Nice. There you go. All right. Cool. 
Well, where can people find you on social media? I can be found on social media at E.H. Blaylock on Twitter and uh, Instagram. And I can be found at Mr. Blaylock on the Tiki Talk. Where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Harmony. Two H's in the middle. Uh, also, every Tuesday night at 8.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Twitch.tv forward slash Capital Puns. Uh, and, of course, this podcast, which drops every Friday. Uh, if you found us just recently, you should go hit that subscribe button, rate, review, give us five star that you know we deserve, uh, and check our back issues. Uh, yeah. It's it's a lot. Of, it, it is a, a hell of a buffet. So yes. Check it out. We touch on a whole lot of stuff. Yep. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of wrestling in the middle of it, but, you know, we can. <laughs> True. And, and a whole streak of Batman. Yeah. Uh, but. You know, there's, we, we touch on everything at least once. You'll find stuff that you we're like. working. We're, we're working on touching everything. Yeah. Because uh, we're like that. And so, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Stitcher, Spotify, and the iTunes store. Tell your friends. Get them to subscribe. Make listening parties. Uh, there you go. Hopefully you can connect soon with people in person. But until then, uh, keep your mask on and listen to our podcast and, yeah. and take notes. So, all right. Well, for a Geek History of Time, I'm Damian Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s.